en hartelike goeiemorgen, welkom by ons program Skrifteerlik, waar ons wekelijk saam na oplossing soek uit die skrifte, vervra waarmee gewone mense sikkel. Die Bijbel sê in Johannes 17, 17, jy woord is waarheid, heilig hulle na jy woord, en Psalm 119, 105 sê, jy woord is een lamp vir my voete en een licht vir my pad. Kom dan saam met ons vir die volgende uur, wanneer ons geen steen onaangeraak laat, om die waarheid te vind en licht te skyn op die vraag uit die skrifte, waarmee ek en jy moendlik kan worstel nie. Krij dus gauw jou Bijbel en kom onderzoek saam met ons die skrifte. Dis moes nou skrifteerlik. Kom raak actief, geloos actief, met 657 Radio Kansel en 729 Kaapse Kansel is waar jy ingeskakel is, hartelike warm radiokansel groete van het ons ateliers hier in Kielnepark in Pretoria en die made it all the way from Benoni, good morning my brother Rocky Stevenson, how are you keeping? Good morning, very well, thank you Vainant. I had a safe trip all the way from Benoni, I believe some hiccups on the highway all the way. Yeah, it seems like the R21 there was a bit of an accident but um, the Lord was very kind to me, I stuck in the left hand lane and that seemed to be the one that went the fastest Isn't so, it amazing, the left hand yeah, lane eh? exactly. it's the fastest lane always <laughs> well uh, for the next hour or so we're going to search the scriptures that's why it's called scriptural dit is ook om ons het skriftierlik noem as jy dalke vraag het wat uh, jy het oor die woord van die Heere, net so interessant het salwe, ons lees op die oomlik uh, dier die Bijbel in een twee jaar leesplan en daar is een magdom goed wat die koppe uitsteek wat uh, vir ons en vir ons luisteraar selfs baie keer nie sin maak nie, and it's in programs like this, where we tackle these questions just interestingly, if you Look at Numbers 17, uh, by virtue of example, they, uh, there's a, a talk between God, Moses, Aaron, and they're talking about a salt covenant, out of the blue, a salt covenant. Rocky, can we start this uh, program? We had a request, uh, somebody asking, what does a salt covenant mean? Where does it come from? And why is it even in God's word there in Numbers 17? What do we yeah. answer, the listener? Yeah, it's um, salt is something that's relatively easy for us to get today and relatively inexpensive. But salt was something that was such an important commodity um, in Old Testament and even New Testament times. In fact, where we get our term salary from is actually salt money. That's My where, goodness. so even the, the fact that we use the word salary is you use something. You salt worth to get yes, your salary. Yes, and, <laughs> and that's it. I mean, people talk about their weight in salt. You know, somebody is their weight in salt. And so salt has been such an important aspect, even going back into Old Testament times. And I do believe that there is something of a New Testament principle to take from this as well, because this salt covenant was something of the way that the Lord would provide for the priests. They didn't, from the tribe of Levi, they would not have uh, an inheritance like the rest of Israel when it came to land. The tribe of Levi would actually be scattered throughout all of Israel's territory, and they would have these different cities of refuge. But the, the tribe of Levi would also be the tribe that was in charge of the temple worship, and it was very much the government of the people of Israel. They were a theocracy that was underneath God, meaning that they were a country directly ruled by God. And one of the ways that he did that was through the Levites. 
and the Levites would be provided for by the Lord. And this is where this idea of a salt covenant came from. In particular, you see some of that more referenced even in Numbers 18, verse 19, where you see the salt has always been something that was upheld for its preservative type of uh, attributes as well. And that's something that in today we've got refrigerators, we have different ways of preserving meat, but you would have salt used, and it would often be used even within the sacrificial system. You'd have none of the the offerings that were brought would be brought without any salt at all. And so salt was something that was seen as as that kind of a commodity. And then the idea of salt also in this covenant carried this great deal of meaning because of that value of the salt. And um, later on, Jesus even talks about us being the salt of the earth. Yes, very and much. That's so. a way that he would even use that. But it's it's never quite explicitly explained throughout the scriptures. But what we do see is that it's given as this idea towards looking after the tribe of Levi and Aaron in particular. So Numbers 18 verse 19 to 21 says this, All the contributions of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel raise up to Yahweh, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual statute. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before Yahweh to you and your seed with you. Then Yahweh said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portions among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Now the sons of Levi... Behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. So this is where we get this idea of a salt covenant from is God's provision as a perpetual provision for the tribe of Levi in particular. And so he looks after his priests, those that would be teaching the word of God, upholding the law of God, God saying, I'll be your portion. And so there's a spiritual element to this as well, where God says, I'll be enough for you. The tribe of Levi, I'll be enough for you. But how am I going to provide for you? I'm going to provide for you through the obedience of the rest of the of the tribes of Israel. Those 11 tribes will be bringing their tithe and their offerings, and they will be bringing their sacrifices. And through this, I'm going to be looking after you. And even as you would have the, the meat put with salt, it would actually cause that to last longer, taste better. And this was something that God said, this is the way I'm going to look after the tribe of Levi. And I'm going to look after the sons and even the daughters of Aaron and those that are priests within the priestly system. And, and they would look after even the tabernacle for many years until in Solomon's time, the temple would be built. And then God looked after the tribe of Levi, even through these marvelous ways. Now, how would we look at this as far as a principle for the New Testament. Well, God has his New Testament church. It's not the same thing as Israel. The church began in Acts chapter 2. That's when the church began. And in his church, he also has set aside men that are gifted when it comes to teaching. If anybody um, aspires to the office of overseer, this is 1 Timothy 3, He, he desires a noble task. And God has also ordained that they should make their living through the gospel. If they live by the gospel, that they should make their living through the gospel. And he does that through the generosity of the local church that these men serving. So Galatians 6 verse 6 to 10 says, And the one who is instructed in the word is to share all good things with the one who instructs him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, 
this he will also reap. So there you see this New Testament principle playing out for the local church and for those that are teaching the word of God within the local church. Those that are taught God's word, they are to share all good things with those that teach the word. Now, this isn't necessarily a salary, salt money, (laughs) as we talk about a salary. Um, In many church contexts in a Western world, we pastors have salaries. But it may be like I have experienced and seen when I've visited churches in Mozambique or churches in Lesotho. I've seen that um, sometimes people would bring of their actual crop. Or if they've slaughtered an animal, they would share some of that meat with the pastor or with those that are missionaries. And so this is the way that God looks after his his men that are teaching the word of God. And then verse 8 of Galatians 6 says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. How is somebody reap, um, sowing to the Spirit in this context is by being somebody who's taught the word of God, sharing all good things with the one who teaches the word of God. In verse 9, And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then... While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And then 1 Corinthians 9 verse 9 to 11 would carry this principle even further, where Paul makes this argument to the Corinthian church saying, actually, I haven't been a burden to you guys. I've worked with my own hands. I've been a tent maker, but I actually deserve to be looked after by you. But I didn't take advantage of that. And then he says this in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. Is God merely concerned about oxen? And Paul makes this point. He's saying God's actually putting a principle in place there, which is part of the salt covenant that there was, that God looks after those that are sharing the gospel. And while those that are teaching God's word, he looks after them by those that are taught the word. He says, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So God will look after his gospel ministers. He will be their portion, but he expects that those that are taught the word of God would be the ones that would share with those that have taught the word of God. And so that's where we see this principle coming through from the salt offering. And um, just as a balance to that, because I can hear, you know, um, I know that some will be listening to this and going, oh, yeah, we yes, go again. Yes. Yeah, we go again. Here's another pastor saying that the church needs to give money to those that are pastors. Um, now, First Timothy 6, verse 10 to 12, and this would be to the pastors out there that might be listening. And this is what, what Paul says to Timothy, because there ought to be this balance. The pastor ought to see God as the one that is his enough. God is my portion. My provider. God is my provider. And God does. You know, as you seek to serve him, he does provide for you. And he does that through the local church and through the means of others that are that are sharing with you. But listen to what he says to Timothy. Because I think there is this temptation, even amongst pastors, they are just as much men as what everybody else is. It says this in First Timothy 6, verse 10 to 12. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. And some, by aspiring to it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, O man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called 
and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, of course, that was to Timothy, but this applies to everyone who actually teaches the Word of God. You look to God as being the one Mm. that provides for you. God does expect the local church to take care of the financial needs of those that are sharing the Word of God with them. However, for you as the man of God, it's not your responsibility to worry too much about that. You pursue godliness and you do the work of the ministry and then you trust God to provide your needs. And the Lord will look after those that are His ministers. That's what He does. Rocky, can I ask you this? Um, There is, it's almost like a two-edged sword. You know, there are those who says, well, keep the pastor poor, then he stays humble. And then on the other side of the coin, there is a saying that all the church can talk about nowadays is money. What is the fine balance in between? How how do we, how do we, uh, I mean, you as much, you're a pastor, uh, you as much deserve to put your children through university, uh, stay in a proper house. Where do we draw the line? If I look at the Old Testament, number 17, the best that Israel could present, they bring to God, which he gives to the Levites. It is literally the best. Yeah. Uh, but nowadays there is, um, I mean, the Americans say you want to get rich, start a church. Where do we draw the line? Yeah, I think I think that we actually are in such a broken space in regard to much of this. And I see this in, in some of the conservative evangelical churches because that's where, that's where I'm at mostly. I mean, I, that's, that's if you had to say he has a tribe or there's a tribe, I'm amongst most of the conservative evangelicals in our country that right. hold up the authority of the Word of God. And oftentimes there's this pendulum swing that seems to take place from the Word of Faith kind of a prosperity gospel side of things, the, let's say the TBN Christianity yeah, yeah. in that way, um, and it takes this pendulum swing to the other side, and they go, well, let's just look after the, the bare essentials, and yeah. there's this idea, well, we'll keep him poor, and God will keep him humble, <laughs> and, um, and there seems to be that type of a, a mentality, and, and where's actually what we see even in First Timothy 5 is that those that are, that are actually working hard at teaching God's word, God gives a command to local churches to pay a man like that double honor. Um, And that's what God says. But we ignore those type of passages. And in the end, what kind of an individual would you like to give a double salary to? It's somebody who truly loves the Lord Jesus and is going to be ministering. Somebody that you look at and you go, this person is using everything that he has his whole life. And who are not inspired and driven by money. Exactly. And yes, somebody that actually is going to be using the money that we give anyway towards the upliftment of the local church. And that's somebody that you'd want to give a double wage to. But there does seem to be much imbalance with these things. And I think that, uh, that that's part of the brokenness that we have in the world. And this is one of the reasons that we need to take courage and teach people what God's word says and continue to, to honor the Lord in regard to these things. It is also sometimes easier to fight for uh, the, the, the more biblical right for others than yeah. what it is even for yourself. Yeah. But I would encourage pastors, go teach your congregations what the Bible teaches yeah. in regard to these things. Actually, you have God... Um, punishing the people of Israel, I think it was during the time of Malachi, where they were the people were not looking after the Levites, and the Levites needed to start going to the fields instead of singing in the temple worship, etc., because they weren't being looked after, and everybody was so worried about the paneling of their own houses that they they neglected God's house. 
and I think that there is that that happens also in our day. And and a lot of the time, there's been so many abuses of this in so many a ways. A broken system. Yeah. Um, and a very broken system. And, and we need to get back to following what the Word of God teaches. And as we do what the Word of God teaches, a lot of these things get sorted out as we as we go along. Right. Bless your heart. Uh, that uh, then the answer to the question, please explain the salt covenant in Numbers 16. It is still a salt covenant, and you and I still have a responsibility. If you've got a question, Chris, I can explain for you daar op WhatsApp. Christa, ons het hierdie vraag al baie, baie, baie gekry. Ons gaan eerst gewoon muziek breek vat, maar dan gaan ons daarna kyk, and we also had another very interesting question this morning, all about John 7 and Mark 16 that are not found in the earliest of manuscripts of the Bible, but have been included in most modern versions. A simple question, why is this? Uh, we'll look at that at the, in a moment also. As jy vraag het wat jy wil deerstuur, na skriftierlik toe, die nommer in die atelier, ek gee om vir jou goed stadig, is 082. Het jy om 082 Vodacom Netwerk, dan 657, die frekwensie waarop jy luister, 657, die nommerkie 2, en dan 7 Kan ek jy stadiger doen as dit nie? 082-657-2729 Stuur jy WhatsApp boodskap hier as jy vraag hy die Bijbel uit, miskien een leefstijl vraag, iets omtrein die Bijbel wat nie vir jou sin maak jy, hoe pas het in by ons sogenaamde 2023 leefstijl? Jy is welkom om dit vir ons deur te stuur. In the meantime, I hope that you have hope as you listen to this program and that God would inspire you through this program that uh, you will have hope for the rest of the day and the rest of the week. Old hope. Hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> All about hope this morning. Well, if you're looking for hope in God's Word, you will find that hope. God's Word is full of hope. And if you've got a question, uh, I hope you find the answer in this program. Hmm? Send it through to 082657. 2729 Can't give it slower to uh, you than that uh, Gerda Nudia, I see you've uh, forwarded us a, uh, a voice note Ek gaan nou probeer kyk of ek kan luister daarna Dis Gerdaikie Maar kan ek vir jou vraag om het vir ons uit te tik Het maak het net makkelijker hier in die atelier om daarna te kyk 26 minuten oor 11 En uh, Gerdaikie, as jy jou boodskap kan uit tik uh, Misschien die skrifgedeelte kan bysit Dan is daar groot waardering daarvoor So 026572 Rocky, we got a, a, a question from a listener that says John 7.53 and also John 8.11 and I think another question, uh, a scripture that was mentioned is Mark 16. Uh, says are not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now I'm not sure which manuscripts this person refers to of the Bible, but they have been included in most modern versions. Here's the question, why is this? Where did they come from and how did they end up in our modern translations? And how does this affect the uh, reliability and infallibility of the Bible? Bible skeptics uh, can say, well, what else? Uh, then have been added or removed. How do we answer this mm, listener with mm. this question? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in the Codex Sinaiticus, as well as the Codex Vaticanus, which are the oldest manuscripts that we actually have, now what's helpful to understand is there is something called textual criticism. 
Now, that sounds like a terrible name because we think criticism is a bad thing, but um, textual criticism is a good thing. It compares all of the manuscripts that there are, and we have such modern technology even today that's so wonderful where these manuscripts have been placed into computer systems. They're able to look at exactly where's any difference between different manuscripts. What's helpful to realize is that a manuscript needed to be copied word for word by scribes, and the scribes would often be your most talented, most gifted, most trained individuals that there were, and there were such high standards when it came to the manuscript copies, in particular the Old Testament, um, from the, the scribal perspective of the Jewish tradition, was a huge thing. But those are some of the oldest manuscripts that are known, and um, those manuscripts are always copies of what we call the autographer. The nice way of remembering autography is you go to somebody for an autograph. If you get the autograph of somebody, you know that that came from their pen. They signed a thing, and that was their signature, and that's an important thing when you get it from an important person. The autographer is the original from God's, um, let's say, the, the inspiration from the Holy Spirit written by the human author. And there were plus minus 40 human authors that wrote the Bible over a period of about 1,500 to 1,600 years, uh, possibly three languages, depending on what your view of the book of Job is, uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, and in about three different continents. Now, these these um, manuscript families, the Codex Sinaiticus as well as the Codex Vaticanus, are some of the oldest manuscripts that are known amongst, and, and they are accurate. They, some of the, they, they, from the fewer generations of copies of the original autographs, and they are the closest in time to the originals that were written. And the older manuscripts do not contain some of what has been asked in the question when it comes to um, what we find in the end of Mark and uh, and as well as in, in John. So from John 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11, as well as in Mark 16, verse 9 to 19, in some of these earliest forms of these um, these these manuscripts, they're not, they're not found there. But then in some of the older manuscripts, they do contain some of these things. They are added in by, by scribes later. And, for example, the King James Version of the Bible, the New King James Version, contains verse 9 to, to 20 of, of Mark 16 because they use some of the medieval manuscripts that were based on, the tra- on those traditions. And so that's what they had at that time, and they took those manuscripts that they had and they compared those manuscripts while they were doing these kind of a, a, a works. But we know even from church history that some of these were not there. Before 150 to 200 AD, it actually it wasn't there. Eusebius, for example, had he did not have that in the Greek manuscripts. Justin Martyr and and um, and Talion knew knew about some of the other endings later on after this 150 200 AD. So, what should we say about these things when it comes to textual criticism? When it comes to some of how did this happen? It could be, and yet there's a good argument for saying that that there were something like footnotes that were in some of the texts that, for example, when you take notes in your Bible and you've been listening to a sermon and you've now taken a few notes in it, there's some that have said that some footnotes had, had kind of crept into some of the latter manuscripts. 
Something that's wonderfully comforting to us is that those passages that are now included in latter manuscripts that are not there in earlier manuscripts does not for one bit change major doctrines of the rest of the scripture or the meaning of the scriptures. And so the full message of what the Bible teaches is not altered in any way by some of what we find here. And if you take the whole of the scriptures and you look at some of those discrepancy points where there's latter manuscripts that include some of it and earlier manuscripts that don't, it adds up to like a 0.1% of the total of the scriptures. If you're looking at the total being 100%, you've got a 99.9% accuracy rate when it comes to God's word. And what's comforting to us as well is that none of that is hidden. For anybody that wants to go and look at textual criticism, actually you land up more convinced that God has done a mighty, mighty work in keeping the Word of God the way that the Word of God is. And so this shouldn't cause us to actually be afraid or worried. In fact, any truly thinking skeptic would come to a position if they were to look at textual criticism where they would uphold the Bible above every single other literary document in all of history because we know Everywhere where there's been some form of a discrepancy. And by the way, the Word of God, the Bible, is the number one printed book in all the world. It was only about 500 years ago that we had the Wittenberg printing press. That was just after the time of Martin Luther, which actually then made it possible for God's Word to be printed on a, on a large scale. Before this, everybody would actually, scribes, would copy God's Word, word for word. If you wanted to have a copy of God's Word, you needed to do it and go through huge amounts of effort to be able to do it. In fact, one of the requirements of Old Testament kings was that they would need to make a copy of the Old Testament themselves by their own pen because they needed to own their own um, copy of the Bible. And so it's just amazing when you look at textual criticism. It should actually increase our confidence in the Scriptures, not diminish them, because we know from textual criticism that passages like these have appeared at later times within the Bible. So it doesn't mean that the account also is not necessarily true. So here's another point I would make on this. It could be that that account, for example, that account with the woman caught in adultery that's there in John, that may well have truly happened. And it may have been something of a um, a, a, a note underneath that didn't land up in the inspired version, as if you wanted to call it, let's say, the inspired version. But it, it doesn't mean that that's not necessarily true, you know. Um, for example, John twenty one twenty five, where where John says this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So it doesn't mean that these accounts are un, are less than true. Yeah, they there. But it may not have been included in the original there. And we should not, and here's another tip, is we should not build major doctrines off of passages that we know were not part of some of these original manuscripts. For example, the ending of, of Mark chapter 16, where it talks about passing serpents around. Now, yeah. I know of some Baptist churches in America, yeah, they're kind of wayward Baptist belt. churches, where they actually do pass around serpents based on Mark 16. Now, that would be an abuse of that text. It may be that truly in, in, in the New Testament time that God had protected his people like he did with Paul when he got bitten by the serpent and then shuck, shook it off in, in Malta into the, into the fire and he did not die from it and God actually had looked after him. It may be that that literally did happen like it did with Paul, but it doesn't mean that we should build some kind of a major doctrine out of it and then make along with the Lord's Supper 
and um, <laughs> and baptism, this kind of snake passing around uh, ceremony. So I would be careful about building any major doctrine off of passages that we know that we, we, we're just so honest about this, and praise God that we're honest about this. Even something like the Legacy Standard Bible will have a footnote saying, this wasn't in the original manuscripts, but this no. is here now. And I would still preach that passage, but there's other other passages that would back up the truths within a lot of those passage, um, passages. And so, Christians, um, one other thing to say to the listener is that the Christian has never, ever bowed down and worshipped the Bible. Never, ever. We have always seen the message of the Bible that God has sent a Savior for sinners to make a way of redemption so that mankind can be made right with God. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, by the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. But we don't do something called bibliology where we actually bow down as though the Bible is an idol. And I think that that is also protected from us in that sense when we look at this. But there's a 99.9% accuracy. And it's such a joy, actually, to go and look at something like textual criticism. In fact, some of the skeptics that have come up out swinging so hard against God's word, when they've gone and made a study of textual criticism, most of the time they're converted. And they yeah. turn to Christ and they go, this is amazing that yeah. God has actually looked after this so well. And so this is what is, I think, a help for us, is that God's word is, is so beautiful. To the skeptics of the Bible, all the evidence that exists regarding textual criticism heightens our wonder and our amazement at the accuracy of the word of God. It does not diminish it, not at, not at all. And anyone with the right thinking would stand in awe and wonder of the reality that God has so preserved his word throughout all the generations of man. There is no more honest book in existence than the Bible. And that's a joy for us. And as we have it in different versions and even in different languages, we have God in his mercy has given us the Bible in English now, in Afrikaans, in different languages. It's because there's the message of the Bible that is so incredibly important. And none of those passages that are kind of like passages that say gray passages, if you want to call it a term, that are kind of like, oh, was this in the original manuscript or is this in later (laughs) manuscript? None of those make any difference to the beautiful reality of the scriptures that teaches that there is a savior for sinners and there's a way for us to be made right with God. I will never forget whenever this conversation rear its head, the scripture that comes to mind, Rocky, is John seventeen seventeen. Mm. Sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. And then mm. somebody said in America, but you get got these uh, Eskimo tribes that never seen a lamb in their life. And the Bible talks about a lamb. So how do you uh, culturally explain the concept of a lamb being slaughtered? it, yeah. uh, you know, to, to a, a, a tribe, a, a tongue, a nation who yeah. has never seen a lamb, you know. Yes. So, but in the context thereof. And it, that's, that's such a joy to think about, you yeah. know, and to pray about. I mean, there's still Bible translating societies today. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I know the Wycliffe, uh, the Wycliffe group is still busy working hard at work translating the Bible into different languages. And not long ago, actually, even here in our own country, I think it was the first time in in 2017, I believe it was, I may be under correction, where the vendor version was released. And that was the first time that there was a vendor version of the Bible that was released in the north of our country in Limpopo. And so praise God that there are still translation works that are taking place. I know, for example, one of the men that I'm a dear friend of, um, Philip LaRue, who's a missionary in, on a little island called Agataya, he's busy translating the Bible into a language called Tagalog, 
which is in the Philippines. Oh, and, um, and that's just amazing to just talk yeah. to him about that work and to see the way that even now there's still men that are hard at work busy translating, translating mm-hmm. the Bible. Because we do know in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, that, that members from every tribe, tongue, Tung- and, and nation, nation. Yeah. will be before the throne of God. I got asked a question this last Sunday, which was an interesting one during our um, adult Bible study, because we've got something called Bible 45 on a Sunday before church begins. And we have our children's Sunday school and we have our adult Sunday school. And the question was, what language will we talk in, in heaven? And I immediately said, of course, it's Engels, because, you know, that's the language of the angels, right? But I was just teasing because oh, um, uh, I know that people will say, no, Hiriyasi, or that one is. Um, but but I, I just, on thinking on it at that moment, I, I came to the, the thought that actually we're probably all going to speak the language that we grew up speaking. Yeah. But everybody else will understand us yeah, all the yeah, time. In a blink because of an the eye. Bible says... People from every tribe, every tongue, every, every nation. nation. Yeah. And what's going to be wonderful is we will sing a new song before the Lord. And I wonder to myself, when that new song is sung, will we all be singing it in our home language? You know, the language that's in your heart, that's in your mind. Your mother tongue. Uh, your mother tongue as mm. such. Yeah. Will we be singing it in our mother tongue and it will all just make this harmonizing effect with all the other tribes, tongues, and nations? Fantastic. That's going to be wonderful. Bless your heart. Thank you for clearing that one up for us. Gerda Nudea. Say, say for me, what's up? I'm going to click in, see if you for me, what's up? Antwoord. Want I will graag weet. Gerda, I will ongelukkig not for you the answer to what's up. We will post it. We will the program podcast for the time. But thank you. Say, say, my son, Rocky, I want to put these two together. Gerda Nadia's question and let me see Krista because Krista is saying Mora and you and Rocky ou vraag maar ek moet vraag want dat ek die rechte antwoord kan gee as Arm nou die eerste mens was en daarna het God die rest van die mense gemaakt vraagteken question mark if Adam is the first man and after that God created other men question mark Genesis 1.26 who was Cain and Abel's wives keeping in mind Abel was murdered Tufra uh, Gerda Hier net na Christa Vra sê interessante vraag My little boy of 9 years old wants to know Where does all these other people came from then? Uh, the Bible doesn't say that God had made them uh, Only Cain and Abel And and Cain killed Abel So can we slap the two yeah, together? Yeah we can, we can And it's amazing <laughs> that two different people would ask a, a similar question Genesis chapter 5 says this From verse 1 This is the book of the generations of Adam In the day that God created man He made him in the likeness of God He created them male and female And he blessed them and made them man in the day that they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now it talks about Seth, it says when he had lived 105 years, and it became the father of Enosh. Now, that's interesting because we look at this and you realize that people were having children a lot later in life. We also know that God then limited the the age of man just before the flood in Genesis 6. He limited it to 120 years. An interesting fact is that Noah... He, he, his grandfather lived at the same time that Adam was still alive. And so you can imagine the generations of man that played out, that Noah's granddad was still alive when Adam was alive. And, and what we have is from Genesis 5, we see that there, there Seth is born only 130 years later 
but we do know that Cain and Abel were born, and there's this zooming in and zooming out that happens in the book of Genesis all the time. We're not told all of the details, but we do know that Adam had other sons and other daughters, but he may well have also had other daughters after Cain and Abel and had to wait another 130 years before God would give him another son in his likeness, Seth. We do see that Cain and Abel um, were adults at this time. We aren't told whether or not Abel had any um, children or how many other children Cain had had. We do know the genealogies of Cain because we're told that just after this in chapter um, 6 we see some of this, chapter 5 we see some of this. We see all of this, um, these, these men and women that were alive. And so we know that Adam and Eve were the first parents, and from Adam and Eve came everybody that is alive today. Now, the the second question that we had asking, where do all these other people come from, from the nine-year-old boy? We know that what we have after the flood, Genesis 6, we have the same command given to Shem, Ham, and Jopheth. Go and procreate, fill the earth, subdue it. You know, go and do this. Instead of going, they stayed together, and that transpired to where we have Genesis chapter 11, which is called the Tower of Babel. And there, mankind had already begun to now procreate more, and there were many of them on the earth. And so they gathered together, and they said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build this tower. Let's stick together. And God confused their language, and so from there, they split up around the face of the earth. And this is where all of the different tribes and tongues and nations come from, that confusion of the languages at at Genesis chapter 11. I want to use the word very carefully and tread it carefully when I ask that. But in those days, way back then, the word incest didn't exist, did it? Um, When we look at, 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 at the peoples on the face of the earth. Yes. Yeah, so what we have is later on with um, the law being created, yes. and that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by Moses. And Moses writes about the account in the Genesis account. We know that the book of Job actually took place in the time of the patriarchs, yeah. you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Somewhere there, Job existed at that time. And so the book of Job was the first book of the Bible actually written as far as historically, although the historical events of the book of Genesis precedes that of of Job. But we have and, and, and what you've got to realize is that there's so much history that is looked at in the book of Genesis. I mean, Genesis 1 to 11 deals with such a huge swathe of human history. But we tend to look at these things from our perspective and we know, okay, well, man lives up to maybe 70, 80 years old if he is strong. But yeah, you've got somebody like Adam living almost a thousand years, 930 years, but he was created in his full vigor. You know, yeah. he was probably yeah, yeah. created a healthy 50-year-old, or I have no idea how, how healthy totally Adam is. different or, you know, earth probably to what we 30 have today. years old, yeah. very different earth than what we have to today. And then also there was a, a, a strong genetic pool. There was, if you have to go and look at something like epigenetics and genetic studies, and you have to see the way that our genetics are actually devolving over yeah. time. There's no such thing as evolution. Yeah. But they had a strong genetic pool at that point. The only and guy like in heaven said, without a navel. You know, incest was not yet yeah. something that was a command biblically given and so you would have Cain and Abel marrying their sisters and um, Seth marrying one of his sisters either from um, Abel or from Cain 
and 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 so the earth began to be populated oh, right. by these. Oh, okay, makes absolute sense. And a big thank you then to Khadrun uh, Udia, uh, nine-year-old boy, that asked that question, and uh, also let me see Krista that uh, posed that uh, question. Uh, had a question from Steffi that says. Um, I'm a maternity nurse most of my life. Can I ask the question, when we come into the world, we are born in sin, according to the scriptures. I want to know what happens to newborn babies that die. Do we know what happened to their spirits and after mm. they die? And I've been a maternity yeah. nurse and, and dealing with kids for a better part of my life. Can you answer me on that one? Does the word ever answer for us? Yes. Um, I, I, there are different schools of, of thinking um, when it comes to babies that die. I believe that the biblical approach is that babies that die in the womb or before what is called the age of responsibility or accountability will go straight to heaven. And this is why Jesus said that to such belong the kingdom of heaven, yes. that heaven is very populated with little babies. Um, and and this is also one of the reasons that I believe that heaven will be more populated than hell um, because the road is very broad. Many are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Few are on the narrow road that leads to life. But if you look at just the amount of um, abortions that take place, the amount of infants that are killed within the womb, we have a huge amount of babies that actually are uh, murdered even before they are on this earth. And um, if we if we look at the, the scriptural reference to this, one of the, the best arguments that I've heard on this is regarding David's son from... from um, Bathsheba yeah. that died yeah. and and you have David told that this child is going to die because of your sin this is part of the consequence of what you have done and he mourns and he begs God please don't let this this baby die but David rejoices because he will go and be with this baby once more and this is in 2 Samuel chapter 12 from verse 15 where it says then Yahweh smote the child and Uriah's wife and that bore to to David so that he was very sick David therefore sought God about the baby and David fasted and wept and went and spent the night lying on the ground and the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground but he was unwilling and he would not eat food with them then it happened on the seventh day that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead so for they said behold while the child was still alive um, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice how then will we tell him when his child has died he, he might, what, what might he do to himself then? What harm would he do? And David saw that the servants were whispering together. So David discerned that the child had died. So David said to the servants, has the child died? And they said, he has died. So David arose from the ground, washed himself, anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of Yahweh and worshiped. Then he came to his own house and he asked that they set food before him. And he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. When the child died, you arose and ate food. Then he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? Maybe Yahweh will be gracious to me and the child might live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And so there you see this, mm. um, this theology developing from David in that sense. I'm going to go to this child who's died, yeah. but he's not going to return to me. And then you go and study and you see the way in which David mourned and wept and tore his robes and got so, I mean, he threw ash and, uh, I mean, he, he was 
completely distraught when his son Absalom had been thrown with a bunch of javelins. He became something of a porcupine because he was hanging from his hair in the tree. Yeah. And the, the soldiers, threw, he, had, he had had this absolute rebellion against David. And David mourns and he weeps and he tears his garments. Why? Because he knew that his son Absalom had gone to hell. He was wow. now never going to see Absalom again. He was culpable before God for his, um, for his disgusting sin yeah. and his rebellion against mm-hmm. his father David. But yeah, he knows, I'm going to this son again, this son from Bathsheba, wow. this baby that has died. That and so, so that's to me one of the strongest arguments for this. And then our Lord Jesus' behavior with regard to the children, he says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Uh, I trust that uh, that answers your question. Thank you so much, uh, Steffi, for that uh, question that you sent through, that uh, maternity ward nurse, and uh, bless your heart for that. Three minutes left, Rocky. Can we tackle that one? I think there's enough of it uh, for us. Matthew fourteen twenty six, and it's the story about the disciples on the boat with the Lord Jesus, and then Jesus walking the water, and they thinking they're seeing a ghost in the middle of the night. Now, she's got a question here. She says, Was daar dan spoke? Of bygelove oor spoke in daar die tyd? What do we answer this listener with regards to that? Spoke in yeah, actually, weirdly enough, that's a passage that we were doing in our Bible time last night um, with my, my boys, and my son Levi was asking the same thing, you know, what is a ghost yeah. when we talk about this? Amazing. And the way that I explained it to him last night is that we are, as, as individuals, made up of body, soul, and spirit. So there's the material part of man, yeah. and there's the immaterial part of man. There was something called Gnosticism, which was a um, false teaching right at the beginning. The first century church had its, the first big, let's say, attack from false religion was Gnosticism, this knowledge that became this, they worshipped knowledge. And part of what Gnosticism said is that Jesus came only as a phantom. He didn't come in the flesh. And First John was written in particular against that. And so there is this concept of being outside of the body but not in the body being that of a ghost or that of a soul spirit part of man so what they thought they saw was somebody that was not in a body they were seeing a phantom and that's another way of um, let's say translating this idea of ghost it doesn't necessarily mean that ghosts are real we do know that we have got demons and we have got angels and we do have that as a very real reality if we go back and i remember one of our questions at at a point in scriptilic was regarding um saul who went to to get up the he went to the necromancer or to to the um, fortune teller to draw up the soul of Samuel. Yes. And she gets such a fright because she knows that what she's doing is demonic practice, but God actually really allows Samuel to come up and suddenly she realizes, uh oh, this is Saul that's before me. Yeah. And so there is that kind of a spiritual world and spiritual which realm. Which they knew of. Which they knew of. Yeah. And, and here they were afraid now, is this a ghost? But actually it was Jesus in his flesh. And so that would be the best way of looking at this. A person that that could have now just been the immaterial part of man being seen instead of the material part. And I think there has been superstition all along. What I would say, though, is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord or to be awaiting final judgment. That's where people go. And so there's no such thing as ancestral worship, etc. What I would say is that when we do see these things, I would say that it often is demonic. You can have a demonic entity that is seeking to cause you to have fear because the spirit of the Lord, there's freedom. And in the spirit of the Lord, there's not 
the spirit of fear. But the moment that there's this fear, it's, it often would be a demonic entity in that way. All right, uh, Inna, I trust that answers your question. Bye, Donkey. Can you glue a ear, Rocky? Gone, done, dusted into all eternity. And with that, our sincere thanks. All the glory to our Heavenly Father, God's Word, the highest authority known to man. Well, you've listened to this program. We will podcast it in a moment or so. But uh, ultimately, the responsibility lies with you to go and search the scriptures and see whether these things. Things are so. Rocky uh, Jean says, uh, different translations. Bless your heart. Wonderful answer. Thank you for that. If somebody wants to write you an email, be in contact with you, how do they get hold of you? Yeah, they're welcome to send me an email at pastor at benonibiblechurch.co.za. Till next time, all that's left to say is be obedient to God's word. Stay in the scripture. Until next time, keep well. God bless you. And shalom.